And now, please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 7, and that chapter will be our text this evening. Prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 7. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Hislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, Great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. That is the reading of God's word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon it. Father, this is your very word, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts through it. Bless the proclamation of the word, for it is a means of grace of your own appointment, and so we're confident that you're going to use it in each of us tonight, and that is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. The themes that we find the issues that we find in this passage tonight, in this chapter, are very similar to what we find in Micah chapter 6. And you remember the references in the chapter we just read to the former prophets. God spoke here of the former prophets. And Micah was one of those prophets. Micah was one of the prophets that spoke to the people before uh, Judah fell and the people were carried away into exile in Babylon and Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Micah was one of those former prophets who cried out to the people. One of those former prophets to whom 
the people didn't listen, sadly. And what happens in Micah chapter 6, and it's a passage that uh, many of you are familiar with, no doubt. Maybe it's a favorite passage for some of you. But at the beginning of the chapter, God is rebuking the people for their disobedience, for their injustice. And then at one point in, in Micah 6, um, there's sort of this uh, supposed response from the people. And they start asking, in a sense, what do we need to do to satisfy God? What do we need to do to please him? And they ask things like, uh, should I come before him with burnt offerings? Does he want a calf? Does he want my firstborn? Will a thousand sheep be enough? Ten thousands of rivers of oil? And then you have that familiar, beautiful statement from God in verse 8. He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? That's what God wants. That's what He's concerned about. That's what He requires of us. And you have something very similar, a similar dynamic taking place here in Zechariah chapter 7. Now, Zechariah 1 through 6 were, uh, they, they consisted of um, those night visions. And so that whole part of Zechariah's prophecy was kind of a unit. And as best we can tell, all those visions came in sequence, one after another, on the same night to the prophet Zechariah. Starting in chapter 9, there's a series of oracles, prophetic oracles, but 7 and 8, chapters 7 and 8, kind of stand together as a unit. And we see that they're kind of united by a couple of things. First of all, this question of fasting. So in 7 verse 3, the people came and asked, should I weep and abstain? And abstain simply means, it's, re it's a reference to a ritual fast, abstaining from food for religious purposes as an observance to God. And then God does address that to some extent in chapter 7, but it's not until the end of chapter 8 that kind of rounds out this question of fasting at the end of the 8th chapter. There's another thing too that kind of puts bookends uh, on the beginning of chapter 7 and the end of chapter 8, and that's this unifying theme of entreating the favor of the Lord. Remember in verse 2, it says, the people from Bethel sent, and they, they came because they wanted to entreat the favor of the Lord, it says in verse 2. And then at the end, or near the end of chapter 8, verse 22, uh, it speaks of many strong nations coming to seek the Lord of hosts and to entreat the favor of the Lord. So the favor of the Lord is kind of a unifying factor in these two chapters. We also have a time stamp in this chapter. It says in verse 1 that uh, this event took place and this word from the Lord came in the fourth year of King Darius. And what that tells us, um, fourth year of King Darius, uh, the word of Zechariah, uh, word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month. And biblical scholars apparently can, can even uh, narrow that down and isolate that to a date that we could kind of associate with our own calendar. So this event took place and this word came to Zechariah from God on what by our calendar would be the 7th of December in 518 B.C., just so you know. And this is essentially two years after uh, those night visions came to Zechariah 
and approximately two years after the people began to rebuild the temple. And that rebuilding process took roughly four years. And so we're about halfway through the construction phase of the, the new temple, of Zerubbabel's temple. And the message that God sends to his people at this crucial stage in the nation's recovery from exile is that external ritual is worthless without heart obedience. That was the message that God had for his people in Micah 6. That's the message that's coming to us in Zechariah 7 as well. External ritual is worthless without heart obedience. The three things I want us to see in the text tonight are, first of all, uh, we need to ask the right questions. Secondly, we need to prioritize God's priorities. And then thirdly, it's important that we understand cause and effect. That's how we're going to organize the the themes of this chapter tonight. So first of all, asking the right questions. In verses 2 through 7, there was this delegation that comes to Jerusalem. They came from Bethel. Now Bethel, uh, when there were the two kingdoms, uh, the divided kingdoms, and both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were still standing, Bethel was actually in the northern kingdom, but it was just over the border. It was in the southernmost district of Israel, and so it wasn't all that far from Jerusalem. And then when people came back from exile, some of them actually did settle in Bethel. Bethel is a very historic city for the Jews. And you had this group come. They were sent by the people of Bethel, and they were sent to entreat the favor of the Lord, as we said. And they came to inquire of the religious authorities because Jerusalem was, the, was still uh, the religious center of the Jewish people. And they were rebuilding that temple. And so that's where the priests were. That's where the prophets tended to be concentrated at this time, however many prophets there may have been in those days. And so the people of Bethel wanted to go and inquire of the chief priest and the other priests that were there and of the Lord's prophets. And they come with a question, which is essentially, should we keep doing what we've been doing? You see that at the end of verse 3. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Could have been a sincere question. But we've got to ask, what what was their disposition of mind when they bring this question? You can't help wondering uh, whether maybe their attitude was a little bit like the rich young ruler. We spoke of him a fair amount this morning in the morning worship service. And remember, he came to Jesus and wanted to know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But you read that story and you figure out the rich young ruler had a pretty high opinion of himself. He had a pretty high opinion of his own obedience. He was seeking guidance, and yet he was doing it from the standpoint of being pretty self-assured. Or I think of the Apostle Peter. When Jesus is talking about forgiveness, and then Peter says, Lord, uh, how many times must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times? You know, and maybe Peter is expecting some encouragement and some, maybe, maybe thinking Jesus would be impressed by his magnanimity. Seven times, wow. 
Peter, hey everybody, look at Peter. Look at how forgiving a guy he is. Well, both the rich young ruler and Peter got responses from Jesus that they weren't exactly expecting. And these people in the delegation from Bethel probably weren't expecting the response they received either. God's answer is in verses 4 and 5 of our text. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month, these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? So they come to ask, to inquire of the priests and of the prophets, and it's Zechariah who steps up. It's Zechariah through whom the Lord gives his answer. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And God says, you know, this message is not just for, uh, for um, Sharezer and Regem Melech and their delegation coming down from Bethel. This message is for all the people and the priests. And here's the message. The bottom line is that it's an issue of motivation. It's an issue of motivation, and God is saying, I think your motivation is questionable. He says to him, I know you've been fasting in the fifth month. I know everything you do. You do many such things. God knows all they've been doing, and he knows how long they've been doing it, 70 years. Well, just to give this a little bit of context, when they ask about the fifth month, ever since the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the Jews, both many of them that had been uh, taken away into exile, but also that small remnant of the poor that were left in the land, they had observed a fast in the fifth month to commemorate and to remember and to mourn over the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And God, in his answer to these people, makes note of the fact that they were also fasting in the seventh month. So he knew about the fast they were asking about, and he knew about the others as well. In the seventh month, that happened to commemorate the assassination of the governor that Nebuchadnezzar had placed over the people of, uh, of the land. After the Babylonians had laid waste to the whole nation, carried most of the nation away into exile, but he left some of the very poorest of the people to tend to the land, and Nebuchadnezzar appointed a man to be their governor in his behalf. His name was Gedaliah. But there were some rebels, some, some, uh, some fugitives, uh, who came along and they assassinated Gedaliah. So the people were fasting to commemorate that as, as well. God says to them, I know about your fastings. And then we'll find out in chapter 8, there were a couple of other fasts that they had been in the habit of observing. There's a lot of fasting going on. You know, it's a little bit reminiscent of that Pharisee who went down to the temple to pray that Jesus talked about. And as that Pharisee prayed and bragged, bragged to God about how good he is, says, I give tithes of everything I get, and I fast twice a week. 
got a Pharisee fasting twice a week. You got the people in the land fasting up to like four times a year. How many fasts were required of God's people by the law of Moses? Do you know? One fast. What a gracious God we serve. What a kind God we serve. He, when he gave them their religious calendar, he appointed all these feasts, all these celebrations, and one fast. But people kind of heaped up these fasts. Because to some extent or another, I guess it just made them feel good about themselves. But when they come with this question about, should we keep doing this? God says, you're asking the wrong question. God's question for them is, why are you fasting? For me? And the implied answer is, no, you're not fasting for me. And that's clearly implied by how he goes on and says, oh, what about when you're not fasting? What about when you're eating and drinking? Are you doing that for me? No, you do that for you. And God's message to the people is when you fast, you fast for you. When you eat and drink, you eat and drink for you, not for me. God says, I see your hearts and I know why you're doing what you do. And my prophets told you as much. So we saw in verse 7. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and everything was hunky-dory? You were prosperous, you had plenty, and the whole land was still inhabited, the Southland and the Lowland. God's telling His people here that a humble, obedient heart is more important than ritual. It's what He was saying in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. God's rebuking His people because of their religious observances. And He's so unimpressed with their religiosity that He calls His own people. He calls the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah. He refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how He sees their religious observances. So in Isaiah 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's talking to the Jews here. He's talking to the people in Jerusalem. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God said, I've had it up to here with your sacrifices because your heart isn't in them and you're not doing it with an attitude that's right toward me see without a heart that's contrite toward God offerings are repulsive without a heart that's contrite toward God any of our religious observances outwardly any of the externals don't impress him in the least God's message to the people in Zechariah's day and his message to people of, of every age is that you should be more concerned about prioritizing what's important to God. And that leads us to our second point, prioritizing God's priorities. Look with me again at verse 8 through 10. 
the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Zechariah's message echoes the message of earlier prophets. In other words, this isn't new material. God said so. Isn't this what I told you through the former prophets? Does this have a familiar ring? God's message hasn't changed because God hasn't changed and He doesn't change. He's still looking for the same things. And what are those things that are most important in God's sight? What, what's pleasing to Him? Well, number one, justice. The way the ESV puts it, uh, he tells the people to render true judgments. Or other uh, English versions say uh, true justice. <coughs> God's saying, I want you to be engaged in even-handedness, fairness, consistency in your courts of law. And this goes all the way back to the law of Moses. It's what God has wanted all the time. So Leviticus 24, verse 22, God's command was that you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, the person passing through your land who's seeking justice should get the same treatment in court and the same uh, consideration as a person who's native to the land. And when it says you shall have the same rule, the word there in the Hebrew is mishpat, judgment. You shall have the same judgment. You don't judge the foreigner and the person who's an alien or who's a, a sojourner any differently than you would my own people. God is interested in justice. And he's telling his people here in Zechariah 7 that your fasting is worthless if there's favoritism and partiality in your exercise of justice. And so therefore, as he says in verse 10, at the beginning, he, God says, what's pleasing to me is when you take care of and protect the vulnerable, such as, and he enumerates several categories of people who are vulnerable and after whom people who want to please God need to, to look and to, to care for widows widows are vulnerable by definition even in our day but in the ancient world it was especially so it was tragic it was it was a very it was a harbinger of very bad things for a woman to lose her husband because back then they didn't have life insurance policies you didn't go to bank of jerusalem and open up a 401k that you could leave to your wife. No, if a woman's husband dies, she was essentially without protection. She was out without provision. And if she didn't have close family members to come along and take care of her, she was facing some difficulties. It's the same for the fatherless. Same issues, lack of protection, lack of provision, lack of representation, no one to advocate for them. And then sojourners, 
my brother-in-law and one of my nieces are traveling across country right now and they're going through uh, that up in the Midwest where there's some pretty severe storms coming through. So I've been praying for them, for their safety. You know, travelers always face some measure of danger, you know, traveling on an interstate freeway. Safe as it is, comparatively speaking, in the historical context, it always involves some risk, some danger. But in the ancient times, when you needed to stop for the night, there wasn't a Hampton Inn on every exit of the freeway. Inns were comparatively rare in the ancient world. The roads were dangerous. Travelers were easy prey. Travelers could easily be taken advantage of. So God says, I want you to have pity on the sojourner and then the poor. God says, if you want to please me, take care of those people. See to it that they don't suffer oppression, that they aren't taken advantage of, but rather that they're provided for. So God wants justice. He wants us to care for the vulnerable. And he wants us to love our neighbor. Love for neighbor is a summary of obedience that God himself gave. reiterated over and over again by the apostles, by Jesus himself. You know, all, those, all those commandments about how we're to please God by you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Sum it all up and God says it's really love your neighbor. And he shows us a little bit about that in our text tonight. Positively he says show kindness and mercy to one another in verse 9. Negatively, verse 10, he says, don't oppress. Don't devise evil against your neighbor. And look at the end of verse 10. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So you see how even under the Old Testament, God was concerned not just with externals, but with the heart. He sees our hearts and he cares very deeply about what goes on in them. And his commands reach inside to the heart. Don't devise evil against your neighbor in your heart. So you see that if a people aren't administering justice, if there's no protection for the vulnerable, and if they're not showing kindness and mercy, then none of their religious practices and observances have any value at all. None. Isaiah 58 speaks about fasting. God makes some observations about the fasting that the people were observing. The prophet rebukes them for it. And then he goes on to tell them, if you want to know what kind of fast God wants, if you want to know what kind of fast is pleasing to him, let me tell you. And so he says in Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, is not... Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him 
That's God's kind of fast. So to sum up, God is saying, I want you to be like me. He's saying, I want your values to reflect my values. I want your love to be like mine. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. and He loves the sojourner. And so we're to do. We're to prioritize God's priorities. But then finally, God gives a lesson in this chapter about cause and effect. He wants us to understand cause and effect. And that's what we see um, in verses 11 through 14. There's that principle that we have in Galatians chapter 6, where Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, don't be deceived now. God is not mocked. The fact is, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. And that's the principle that we find here in this Old Testament prophecy. And the reason it's so important that we try to understand cause and effect is because the fall and the cloudiness of our minds as a result of sin and the fall causes us to misjudge cause and effect. We fail to see the proper relationship between circumstances and what brought them about, oftentimes. You know, a glaring case in point is of the remnant. After Jerusalem fell, Babylonians rolled through, devastated the land. There's this ragtag group of people. And they came to the prophet Jeremiah and said, tell us what we should do. Uh, what, inquire of the Lord for us. And whatever the Lord tells you, uh, we'll do. And so Jeremiah says, all right, I'll do it. And he goes and he prays, and the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah comes back to the people and said, okay, the Lord spoke to me. He says, don't go to Egypt. <clears throat> Stay in the land. Serve the king of Babylon. And the people said, you're lying. And they didn't do what he said. And so they went to Egypt. And they made Jeremiah come with them. And while they're down in Egypt, Jeremiah was still calling the people to repentance. Even though they had disobeyed God, they had gone to this foreign land thinking they'd be safe, thinking things would be better off. Uh, And Jeremiah continues earnestly to plead with the people to repent of their sins and to turn from their idols. And even after desolation by Babylon, the people remained obstinate and self-deceived. I want you to take a look at this with me. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 44. (laughs) Jeremiah 44. Starting in verse 16, Jeremiah had rebuked the people, rebuked the the men for their idolatry, rebuked the women for worshiping the queen of heaven, making raisin cakes for her. And after Jeremiah speaks to them in God's behalf, pleads with them to repent of their sins, verse 16, it says, uh, Well, verse 15, all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah, 
As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything, and we've been consumed by the sword and by famine. They didn't understand cause and effect. And God's trying to teach them a lesson about cause and effect. He spells it out for them. Verse 11 of our text. Speaking of those, that same generation, he says, they refused to pay attention. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. And then in verse 14, and I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations. God warned Israel. He warned Judah by every prophet and every seer. Let's look at another passage just quickly from the, uh, from the Old Testament. Turn with me to the very last chapter of Second Chronicles. <clears throat> Here's where God lays out cause and effect for them so clearly. Second Chronicles 36. As for cause, here it is. Second Chronicles 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. And then at the end of verse 16, then you find the effect. They despised his words, they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's the cause and the effect. And how does God speak of their response to his prophets here in Zechariah chapter 7? Well, he gives this fourfold description of how the people reacted to his own word that he gave to them through the prophets. First of all, they refused to pay attention, plain and simple, just like we saw in that passage from Jeremiah. Secondly, they turned a stubborn shoulder is the way it's put. That's a good translation there. And the image is when you take a, a working animal and you try to put a yoke on it so you can take it out into the field to work in the field with the animal and the animal doesn't want to do it. And so it avoids the yoke. It tries to move away. So you can't place the yoke on its shoulders. It moves a stubborn shoulder. And God's saying, that's the way you're being to me. They stopped their ears, it says. That speaks of a deliberate, self-imposed deafness to the Word of God. And they hardened their hearts. Verse 12. The ESV says, you made your hearts diamond hard. The, the word there can be translated flint, but uh, the ESV translators chose to use Diamond there, it can mean that, but it's not speaking of the value or the preciousness of diamonds, but of the hardness of them. And so you see how God responded to that, what he did after their persistent rebellion. So in the final analysis, God, we could say, I think this is fair to say, God responds in kind to sinners. He responds in kind. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 13? 
He's speaking about what he did by sending Babylon. He says, as I called, they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. Or, to put it in the words of the book of Proverbs, this is, in the final analysis, how God responds to people. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 24, Because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes in a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. God responds to sinners in kind. Now that might rub some of you the wrong way a little bit, and you might be saying, well, wait a minute. Isn't God sovereign in the salvation of sinners? Well, yes, of course he is. His grace and his mercy are 100% sovereign. But this principle illustrates how God's sovereignty works itself out so that no violence is done to the will of man. God graciously offers salvation to those who will repent. He graciously offers to be reconciled to those who will turn to him in faith and obedience. But if man won't listen to God, then in that last day, when people are going to be begging for the rocks and the hills to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lord and from the wrath of the Lamb, God will not listen to them. Have you ever noticed that when people deal with the great questions of life and wrestle with these big philosophical questions, man asks, why does God allow evil? But man never asks, why does God allow good? When it comes to salvation and the blessings of God, man is obnoxiously persistent in piping up about free will. In the good things, we want accolades. We want some credit. But in the tragedies, we always point the finger at God. And this text gives us some perspective, at least when it comes to the just deserts of the wicked. Men and women all over the world refuse to heed and to hear the voice of God. And in the day of judgment, his ear will be deaf to them. Let me make just a few closing points of application. <clears throat> Ask yourselves, reflect on this text that we've looked at, and then ask yourselves, just by way of self-examination, what are your motives in whatever religious service you render? What motivates you? Why do you do it? Why do you do what you do? Are you obeying God's word? Or are you just doing something that makes you feel good about yourself? God has very little regard for man-made, self-imposed observances. So this delegation comes from Bethel and says, should we fast, should we abstain and weep in the fifth month as we've done for so long? 
translate that into modern times. Should I, should I keep uh, giving up such and such for Lent? You know, there's nothing wrong with observing land, nothing wrong with going to a service and having the person put little ashes on your forehead. But why are you doing it? To be seen by others? Does it make you feel good? Does it make you think God will grant you his favor because you did that? God has little regard for man-made, self-imposed observances, but God is very concerned that we deal uprightly very concerned that we deal in kindness and mercy towards others. Are you doing that? Are you loving your neighbor? That's what God requires of us. Those are his priorities. External ritual is worthless without heart obedience. Now remember, chapter 7 and 8, I said they're kind of united by the theme of entreating the favor of the Lord. Beginning of chapter 7, end of chapter 8, they deal with that theme. People entreating the favor of the Lord. And the whole Bible is united by this theme, the theme that the favor of the Lord can only be found in Christ. Your religious observances can never be pure enough to gain favor with God. Your obedience can never be full enough or perfect enough to gain favor with God. The only person who ever lived a life that was acceptable to the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one of whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And if you desire the favor of God, you need for Christ to take the robes of His righteousness and graciously hand them to you and say, here, put this on. And in the gospel, that's exactly what he does. His perfect righteousness becomes yours to wear before the Father, and then you will find favor with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again that that pardon for sin and that enduring peace of which we sang earlier tonight comes to us through Christ, through his gospel. We could never obey thoroughly enough, perfectly enough, extensively enough to earn our own favor with you, but we thank you for Christ who extends his righteousness to us. Clothe us in it, we pray, and may we serve you in humble and contrite obedience and thanksgiving for the righteousness that you've already extended to us in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.